Welcome to the Dead Lady Show podcast. I'm Susan Stone. The Dead Lady Show celebrates women, both overlooked and iconic, who achieved amazing things against the odds. And we do it through live history storytelling in Berlin and beyond, and at the moment, relatively virtually. Here with me, and still so far away, is socially distant Dead Lady Show co-founder, Katie Darbyshire. Hi, Katie. Nice to see you, and welcome to our first podcast of 2021. Hi, Susan. It's nice to see you, too. So, Katie, as we go back in time all the way to 2018 for our talk, who will we be hearing from today? We're hearing from Laura Radosh, who's a translator in Berlin. She's a good friend of the Dead Lady Show. And in fact, she's made repeat appearances presenting on our stage at Akud. She has, and she is, to my knowledge, the only one who has dressed up as her dead lady or in direct homage to her dead lady while presenting. Right. I mean, I have to admit, a lot of us do enjoy dressing up to go on the stage. But you get fancy. I get fancy. Laura got piratical. <laughs> She did because Laura's dead lady is the Irish pirate queen, Gronuel, also known as Grace O'Malley, who lived an adventurous and not that well-documented life, likely between the dates 1530 and 1603. Here's Laura from the stage, dressed as a pirate, in Berlin's Akud, with the rollicking tale. All right. Gronuel, or Gronuel that's Gronuel the gambler. Gronuel the Grace O'Malley, no one knows where the Grace came from. Those dates, you'll notice they don't have one of those little squiggles in front of them that it's about, because everything I'm going to tell you has a little squiggle in front of it tonight. Those dates are completely coincidentally the birth and death of Queen Elizabeth I. <laughs> I learned about Grace from this book, Goodnight Stories for Rebel Girls. It's like a dead lady show for the elementary school set. <laughs> it's. <laughs> And it's a you know, one-page biography of inspiring ladies. And this one says, spoilers, a rebel pirate whose son is abducted to get him back. She goes to Queen Elizabeth, not only gets an audience, but also then goes to work for Queen Elizabeth. So I'm like, amazing story, you know, Flo and Katie, gotta let me do her. And when they say, okay, I'm like, well, let me see if there's anything out there about her. <clears throat> Anyone want to hazard a guess what, I, what is this? What do these places have in common? No? Water is sort of good. The, they all have either a Grace O'Malley or a Granny Whale pub. <laughs> <laughs> she has her own craft beer festival. <laughs> and this is here, it's a bunch of, you know, drunken white ladies in pirate costumes. Just, you know, <laughs> cheers. In the pirate parade, it's ye loyal crew of Grace O'Malley at the some Florida pirate festival. So she's basically ubiquitous. So any Irish people out here, you don't want to hear me mangling your language and you know telling you something you already know. You can you know grab the Elizabethan scholar next to you, go have a whiskey, come back in 20 minutes. Clube, Granuel is the pirate queen of Clube, looking very Caribbean here. It's in County Mayo in the west of Ireland. She was born into a chieftain's daughter. And apparently these were nice. You know, they had like tapestries inside. <laughs> and <laughs> not a lot of light, but they had people like 
you know, playing the lute and singing ballads to them as they ate. And it was, it was a good life. But it was a very bad time to be born into Irish nobility. It's Henry VIII, who's known for his wives, but he's also in, do we know? Uh, 1542 declared himself the king of Ireland because the, the English aren't doing well. You know, the Portuguese and the Spanish, they're bringing slaves to the New World and bringing spices back and making lots of money. They have lots of ships. And the English have kind of nothing. They're like, well, we can colonize Ireland. So that's what they try to do. They, you know, after the Norman invasion, this part here, the Pale around Dublin, that's English. And the, the rest is all just the wilds. But that's going to change. And it's going to change in Ganya's lifetime, much to her dismay. Her father's a sea captain. He's a merchant. He trades with Spain. Uh, in the summer, you go out to the Bouli and bring your cattle. Here's you know, sort of 19th century Ireland looking very 15th century. And Ganya didn't want to do that. She didn't want to have the home in Bouli life. She wanted to go out to sea. And her father said, you know, I'm sorry, long hair would get caught in the ropes. So, so she goes and she cuts her hair and you know, doesn't show herself until it's too late. That's the story. As you can see, we have like a comic in Gaelic about her. And her father says, okay, which is very unusual, especially since she also has an older half-brother, uh, Donal of the Pipes, which maybe means he played the bagpipe, but <laughs> it also maybe means he liked the pipes that his father brought home from Spain a bit too much and wasn't really sea captain material. So, <laughs> Clue Bay was, this is a modern nautical map and you can see there's like, you know, lots of lighthouses and tons of eddies. It's a very dangerous place. And pirating didn't mean, they didn't, you know, go into other ships and enter them like that nice movie we saw. Basically, all they had to do, any ship that wanted to come up in the area, they went and said, you know, well, would you like safe passage for a little bit of what's on board? And whoever said no, you know, they just like waited until they got thrown against some cliff and went and got the rest of the booty out. Gronje would later call this maintenance by sea. <laughs> yes, was her name for this. And, you know, it's also, it's a pirate time. But she is nobility and she has to do what all noble girls have to do, and that's, you know, marry to shore up the power of the clan. So she's married to Donal of the Battle of Flaherty, the O'Flaherty's have the southern part of Clue Bay, so you know they're extending their power. And as his name suggests, he was just always fighting. So they have three kids, um, Owen, Moreau, and Margaret, sort of the beginning of their marriage, and then no more, which might say something about their marriage. <laughs> and 14 years later, the other thing is she's also, she becomes sort of the chieftain because he's not doing anything and all of his clients, it's a very hierarchical structure, Irish clans, and everyone sort of under him would come to her for protection and food and she would help them. And so 14 years, it's 1560 now, she was 16 when she was married, he gets into a fight with the Joyces next door and they kill him, they almost take his castle, She's having none of that, throws them out, and this castle, which up until then had been known as Cox Castle, gets renamed Hen's Castle. <laughs> That's the name it has to this day. And according to Gaelic law, she would have to go back then. You went in with your dowry, and you could take your dowry out when the marriage was over. But she tried to stay. 
didn't really work. I don't know, maybe her son was old enough. Her mother died, left her something back on Clare Island. So she goes back to Clare Island. And with her go 200 O'Flaherty men. So, you know, they, they must have really liked her. She also has three galleys. No one really knows exactly what the galleys she had looked like, but basically it's sort of a Viking ship thing. Maybe it had 30 oars, maybe it had 100 oars. We have different reports of the few reports there are. You know, so she went back to maintenance by land and sea. Um, she also would take these galleys every year in fighting season, which started in Easter and went into Michaelmas. She would go on Easter to Scotland, pick up a whole bunch of galloglass, which are Scottish mercenaries, and you know, sort of bring them back and rent them out for fighting season. And then she'd bring them back with some cattle back to Scotland. So <laughs> one day she hears that on a kill island there's been a shipwreck. She goes to get the treasure. Someone else got there before her, but there is still a 16-year-old boy on board, so she takes him as her lover. His name... (laughs) How old is she? Her her oldest son is 16, so she's Uh, (laughs) 30-something. His name is Hugh, nationality unknown, but... She did like him, and it was known that you know she liked him. And one day he's hunting on a neighboring clan's land, and they killed him. That was not a good idea. She waited until that family was going on a pilgrimage, slaughtered them all in the church, and then went back and took their castle for her own. But it wasn't, you know, this was like kind of not a really good state of affairs to stay with. And the next part of the story, I'm going to let Zena, the warrior princess, tell it to you here. Lucy Lawless. Grace knew that in order to hang on to their independence and resist the encroachment of the English, the O'Malley's and the other clans in Mayo would have to stick together. Her next move was to shore up her little empire by marrying her second husband, Richard in Iron, the chieftain of the Burke clan. Evidently, Grace had one eye on her man and the other on his castle. Rockfleet lies in this small inlet, overlooking the inner islands of Clue Bay. Its shallow harbour means it's accessible only at high tide, making a sneak attack by sea virtually impossible. It was a perfect stronghold for Grace, away from the prying eyes of the English. Grace decided to marry Richard, but only if Rockfleet was part of the deal. She had a prenuptial contract drawn up. In it, she insisted on a one-year trial period, after which she would decide whether to keep him or to cast him adrift. True to her word, a year later, Richard found he was no longer welcome in his own castle. Grace locked him out of Rockfleet, and with the words, I dismiss thee, she divorced him and kept his prized fortress. The laws of Gaelic Ireland were very progressive in terms of women's rights. Here there was a streak of independence that I think myself came from the Celtic times that had been absorbed into Gaelic law, and women were quite well looked after by the law. And there are many, many instances of chieftains, as they say, putting away one wife for another. But also, there's many instances of women putting away one husband for another. That was Anne Chambers. She basically has single-handedly made Granuel known again. For the last 40 years, she's done nothing but write books about her, make movies about her. But, you know, she's an Irish historian, and she likes a good story. There was this hand fasting thing, but sort of a year after this divorce, they have a child. His name is Tibbet of the Ships. 
because he was born on a ship, of course, and the story is she was, you know, born on the ship, she's nursing a couple of days later, and their ship is attacked by corsairs, by Algerian pirates, and they're losing the battle. So they have to go down and get her into the hold. So she comes up, you know, cursing, may you be seven times worse off in a 12th month. You can't do without me for one day. But, you know, she shoots them all, and they're scared to death, and they leave. And I really like, you don't know her birth and death, but you know what she said that day on the ship. <laughs> Times are getting worse. This is um, Sir Henry Sidney. For the first time ever, Queen Elizabeth is now in power, and she's decided to uh, sort of re bring up her father's Irish colonization. Something called surrender and regrant is what they did, which meant that if the chieftains would surrender their lands to the crown, they would then give the lands back and in turn get taxes. There was, of course, you know, violence involved, but it was also attractive for the chieftains because under Gaelic law, it wasn't actually their land. The land was owned in common. So they were sort of getting something back they'd never had. But there had never been anyone in the West, and none of the chieftains in the West had done this. And Grania is very concerned about this because she has finally, after a long time, gotten Richard to become um, Tonishta, which is sort of second in line for chieftain. So you know, here's the Burks, here's the O'Malleys. They're actually up here. Here's the O'Flaherty's. This this is all sort of Grania's territory, and they're the only ones with ships actually out there. Funny enough, there's the only family that have these galleys. So they're a very powerful family. But there's Sydney going in, her the McWilliam of Connacht. The McWilliam is like the top chieftain. It's not a name, it's a, it's a position. The McWilliam actually decides to make a deal with Sydney. That means that then suddenly, under the English law, it's his son who becomes the next McWilliam and not Richard who was in line to become the next McWilliam. Grania goes to Sir Henry Sidney and offers her services. She offers three ships and 200 men. He says no, but he writes about it. It's one of the only things we have written about her in this ever. <laughs> Make a long story short, there's a lot of fighting. Right now, there's uprisings in Munster, the Desmond Rebellions. They're put down. There's some talk of uprisings in Ulster. Grania is arrested. She's thrown into the Dublin castle, or she's kept in her own castle, but she's kept somewhere. She's arrested and released a couple of times. There's a huge rebellion at some point. She actually goes to Dublin, makes a deal that they will stop rebelling if Richard can become McWilliam. And the queen writes a letter saying, okay, Richard's the McWilliam, which is amazing because the English are trying to get rid of this McWilliam thing. So Richard actually becomes McWilliam for a while, and on the way back from Dublin, on one of these trips, there's bad weather, she can't sail home, so she goes to Howth Castle and asks for a meal, you know, for herself and her 50 men she's got on board the ship, and they say no. And she's like, this is Irish hospitality, this is against everything she believes in. So she sees some kid walking around in front of the castle, and she takes him back with her to Clue Bay because you know he belonged to the castle and her ransom is that Howth Castle will always have the doors open at dinner time and always have an extra plate at the table and to this day Howth Castle sets an extra place at the table. Yes, it's a nice story but things are getting worse. Sir Richard Bingham makes 
Sir Sidney, who we didn't read this, but he said, you know, he, the Sidney would write, wrote home at some point, you know, I've killed so many Irish violets, I can't keep track of them. Richard Bingham makes this guy look good. Richard Bingham is kind of like the Nazis in Yugoslavia. He's just slaughtering everybody. It's a scorched earth policy. He's going to do anything to get Ireland back, and he's really got it in for Grania. He gets his brother to kill her oldest son. He's fighting with them all the time. He actually gets her middle son to work with him. That was a very bad idea. Grania finds out, goes, kills all his cattle, burns his village. He never does that again. He also arrests her. She's also released again. There's One of her biographers thinks maybe she was actually a British spy, that she was spying on the Spanish. We have the Spanish Armada, 1588 in this time, you know, where the Irish really thought this was it, they were going to fight with the Spanish and get rid of the British, and it didn't work that way. This is kind of the time where the luck of the Irish became a saying. Everything goes wrong. Grania writes to Queen Elizabeth, because she's like, she's got to get rid of Bingham. He's also got like 50 soldiers in her castle who she has to feed right now, and all it's... It's, it's not a good situation. And she writes and says, he's killed my son, he's done this, he's done this, he's done this, and he wasn't supposed to. And further, for the pity to be had of this aged woman, having not by the custom of the Irish any title to livelihood or position or portion of her two husband's lands, now being a widow, and yet her son's enjoying their father's lands. You know, so she's destitute. She may have gambled the money away, but no matter what, she is not in a good way. Doesn't get an answer from Elizabeth, and then her youngest son, Tibbet, is arrested and charged with treason, which is you know, basically almost a death sentence. So she decides she's not waiting for the queen's answer. She's just going to sail to Greenwich Castle. So she gets on a boat, and she sails to the queen to wait for her answer there. You know, if you go past um, Gibbets, this is what was done with pirates. So, you know, pirates were put into gibbets, and I think before they were dead, actually, and then left there after for quite a while. You know, she passed the London Bridge with, you know, the people who were luckier and got beheaded. Their, their heads were displayed at the beginning. It's like a town in and of itself, the London Bridge. People had lifetime leases if you had a store there. The plague is raging in London at this time, which is why the Queen is in Greenwich. And she has to stay there for a while. She has a list of 18 questions that she gets that she has to answer, and most of them are sort of about, you know, whose land does your son have, whose land does this have, you know, which land, you know, they're trying to find out what kind of titles they can, what can they get from her. And she spends a long time explaining how she's a poor widow and doesn't have anything, and all the questions about the counties that maybe belong to her sons, the English spell them wrong, and she says, I know of no county by that name. <laughs> but she gets her audience with the queen. Here she is in the flop Broadway musical, The Pirate Queen, <laughs> by, the, by the makers of Riverdance. And, <laughs> and this is kind of how I imagined this meeting from the Goodnight Stories for Rebel Girls. You know, here they are in their 30s, and this poor little child has been abducted. But, you know, actually, they're in their 60s. And, you know, the poor child is, well, he's, he's, she was older when she had him, so he's, you know, in his late 30s. Um, but 
And Queen Elizabeth was also full of makeup, her teeth are falling out. <laughs> but I think this is, you know, the story is the really, it's incredible. Here's this Irish pirate, gets an audience with the queen, and the queen listens to her. And so the big question has always been, you know, why? And there's a lot of, oh, you know, there were two queens meeting one another, but that's kind of ridiculous. This is the, you know, contemporary picture that's always used because it's only 200 years after the meeting <laughs> that this picture was made. You know, that's ridiculous. She's, she's very sly, Grania, and she knows she's not going to, you know, get anything from the queen by being all haughty. But I think there was a sort of mutual respect of both being women in man's position. That's one thing. And of course, Elizabeth, you know, is also a pirate queen. She builds up the British Empire on piracy. She's um, knighting all these pirates, and she's getting the pirates to become sailors and kill the Spanish Armada and build up her navy. So she understands pirates. Most of the stories, here we have things like they say, oh, you know, Elizabeth gave her a handkerchief, the slow story, and she blows her nose and then throws the queen's handkerchief into the fire. And she's like, yeah, you're meant to keep that, you know, Elizabeth. And she's like, you know, we have higher standards of hygiene. But, but, you know, I think basically the queen took pity on her, and she does actually write to Bingham and say, you have to let her son and her brother, her brother's also been arrested, you have to let them go, you have to give her one-third of her ex-husband's lands, you have to make sure she gets some maintenance. But he doesn't really listen to Elizabeth right away. It's far away, the west of Ireland, but eventually she does, and he even ends up in jail. And then this man comes along. This is Hugh O'Neill, the Earl of Tyrone, who leads the Nine Years' War. It's the largest Irish rebellion. And they almost win. The, at some point, the Spanish Armada comes to help them again and gets into a storm again, and it doesn't work out. And Grania and her son, who's sort of you know taken over the business, are most of the time fighting with the Irish, but she's a gambler and she's wanting to, at the end, she tells her son, you know what, go fight for the English. And he does, even attacking the Burks, which are you know, her relatives, it's her daughter's clan. Uh, Tibbet becomes the Earl of Connacht at some point. They want them, they're very good allies. You know, it's here, uh, it's from the English calendar of state papers in 1599. Says, you know, three very good galleys with Tibbet along, son to Granny O'Malley, her brother in O'Malley, will carry 300 men apiece. These, if employed by Her Majesty, would do much good in the north. And the O'Malleys are much feared everywhere by sea. There are no galleys in Ireland but these. So, you know, Grania was an opportunist, and this is why she does not really appear either in the Irish or the British history books for a long, long time until Anne Chambers comes around. You can't say she was ever forgotten. She was always the stuff of legends. I really think, for me, Grania, she epitomizes one of my favorite sayings, which is, you can always tell an Irish girl, but you can't tell her much. <laughs> that was Laura Radosh on Grania Whale, or Grace O'Malley. If you now have a burning desire to read a book about Grace O'Malley... And you should. Oh, you should. An easy way to do so would be to head on over to our new bookshop.org or uk.bookshop.org affiliate stores, 
We've got books there about Grace and many of our dead ladies, mm -hmm. as well as books from our presenters and from our Dead Lady Book Club, which is an exclusive for our Patreon supporters. Mm. We'll have links in the show notes to our bookshop shops where purchases support independent bookstores and us. Yay. And also we have a link to the Patreon in the show notes. But you can find them both by just going to those websites and searching for Dead Ladies Show. Also, another thing you could do is you could just take the list of books we've made to your favorite local indie bookstore. Yeah, why not? Why not? Give them a treat. Um, we really appreciate your support for us and for authors and for culture in your own town. Yes, the culture people really need your support right now. So we'll support them as much as we can and uh, we hope you will too. Thanks to everyone who has already supported us on Patreon and elsewhere. You know, you can also help us out by sharing our podcast with friends and family. That's free. Rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, also free. And thank you to Anna Kiel in Denmark for her recent review. She says, great show. Please make one about GEM Anscom. I had never heard of GEM Anscom, so I looked her up. She's a British analytical philosopher. Sounds fascinating, so we'll be reading more about her. Thank you for the tip, Anna. You can send your ideas via podcast review like Anna did or email us at info at deadladyshow.com. It's time for some music, not a sea shanty. Oh. That's our theme song, Little Lily Swing by Tritachion. And I think I will go find some sea shanties about Grace O'Malley and add them to the show notes. <laughs> the Dead Lady Show was founded by Florian Dowsons and Katie Darbisher. The podcast is created, produced, and edited by me, Susan Stone. Thank you, Katie. Thank you, Susan. And thanks to everybody out there listening. See you soon. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Support for this episode of the Dead Lady Show podcast comes from the Berliner Senat.